0: Well, we look now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're moving along to verses 12 and 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Let me read them for you. These are the words of God. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, But such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. There are some things in the Christian life that are absolutely unavoidable. There is no way around them. They are inescapable parts of our lives in this age as we await The return of Christ. One of these inevitable things is the reality of temptation. The Bible doesn't speak in terms of if we are tempted, but when we are tempted. Temptations can be likened to impediments one encounters on the road. Perhaps there's a sharp curve up ahead, perhaps there's damage of some sort, maybe a a form of heavy obstruction. These hazards that cannot be removed quickly, and in some cases, they cannot be removed at all, therefore, signs are placed along the roadway to alert you, to warn you of the danger that lies ahead. But these signs will do you no good if you don't avail yourselves to them. There are two specific ways that may cause you to not heed these warnings, these signs along the road. The first is pride. You see the sign, but you think, oh, surely it's not that bad. Perhaps you think, well, I'm a good driver. I I can handle these conditions. That's what I do when I see one of those signs that says 45 miles an hour around this curve. To me, that's a challenge to see just how fast I can take the curve. It's not where you're supposed to amen, brother. <laughs> but, but what is that? If we really want to boil it down, it's pride. There's a sign that tells me, you better not go faster than 45 miles an hour around this curve. And, and my heart says, I bet I can do it in 60. Pride. Secondly, carelessness. You saw the sign that said, speed bump ahead. Whatever the case may be. But perhaps you were busy. You were replying to a text message. You, you had the music up loud. And you were, you were grooving. And you were careless. And then when you get to the impediment, all of a sudden you remember the sign and think, oh, why didn't I pay closer attention to that sign? You didn't think about how the information on the sign should impact your driving and therefore you made no changes. Whether your issue was carelessness, whether your issue was pride or whether your issue was a combination of both, because you failed to take heed of the signs, when you reached the impediment, you were unprepared and you crashed. You wrecked your car on the side of the road. And it is for these same reasons of pride and carelessness that many believers make a wreck of their Christian life when they experience temptation. Not because the temptation was too great, but because we were woefully unprepared for it. In addition to warnings, God in His Word also gives us something that we don't find along the highway, and that's assurance. In the text before us, we find warnings to guard ourselves against temptation, but we also find precious promises of God assuring us of His sustaining grace in the midst of temptations. And if we're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, and if we're going to grow to be mature in the faith, then we need both of these things. We need the warnings, and we also need the promises. Let me remind you of what we've seen thus far in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We we need to consider verses 12 and 13 in light of the broader and narrower contexts. In verse 13 of chapter 10, or in verses one through, one through five of, of chapter 10, Paul made the point that participation participation in the external privileges does not guarantee that you're partaking of divine grace. It is possible for you to come to church, to be a member of the church, to be baptized, to partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, to look like a Christian, and to be lost. That's, that's a possibility. Just because you're coming to church and doing all the things that you were told a Christian is supposed to do that does not automatically guarantee that you're saved. And Paul illustrated that point with the Israelites in the wilderness. What we saw there in verses 1-5 through the key word was all. All our fathers passed through the cloud. All of them were baptized in the sea. All of them partook of that same spiritual meat and same spiritual drink. Yet with all of them God was not well pleased. Do not think, do not fool yourself into thinking that God is pleased with you simply because of the external acts that you perform. And then in verses 6 through 11, Paul cited specific examples of their sins that they committed in the wilderness to the intent that we would not follow after them. Those sins were the sins of idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting Christ, and Complaining. What a list. And what Paul wanted us to realize is that the judgment that fell on Israel is to serve as a warning to us that if we follow in the same sins, we will receive the same judgment. And now Paul begins verse 12 with a therefore, a wherefore to signify that he's going to draw some concluding applications from what he said thus far. Verses 12 and 13 are really the application of the preceding 11 verses. So this sermon will be heavy in application. Now the broader context of this passage calls our memory back to the unit that began when? All the way in verse 1 of chapter 8. Paul began by telling us that love edifies and knowledge puffs up. Therefore, we are not to abuse our Christian liberty so as to tempt our brothers and sisters in Christ. What does temptation have to do with Christian liberty? Well, if you abuse your Christian liberties, you will become a source of temptation. Christians motivated by love do not insist upon their rights. That might be an American ideal, but it's not a Christian ideal. To always talk about, well, my rights, well, my rights, well, you can't tell me I can't do that. I have the right to do that. That's not the way a mature Christian talks. Mature Christians gladly set their rights aside before they will become a stumbling block to others because they love others more than they love themselves. Well, then in chapter 9, Paul gave us a personal example of how he limits his liberties. What was the chief liberty there that he used in that example? It was his right to financial compensation as a minister of the gospel. And Paul said, I have laid aside this right. I have not taken advantage of this right for the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. And now in chapter 10... Paul is bringing this conversation to a a close, and he's applying the teachings of Christian liberty and practical holiness and disciplined godliness. He's applying them to the issues raised by the Corinthians of eating meat sacrificed to idols. That's really where this whole thing began. The Corinthians, in their letter to Paul, had asked him about meat sacrificed to idols. If you ever um, asked someone a question, and really you had... Ulterior motives in your question when you asked it. And you asked them this question because you wanted to, to get a specific answer and you wanted to validate your own opinion, and that was your ulterior motive. But the person you asked the question to saw through your ulterior motive and began to give you a, a lengthy, longer answer that you really didn't like all that much. That's what Paul's doing to the Corinthians. You know, they asked, Well, what about this meat uh, sacrifice to idols? And Part of the church wanted Paul to just say, "Yeah, absolutely, you have the right to do it." And then part of the church wanted Paul to say, "Absolutely, you don't have the right to do it. It's idolatry. Don't do it." And what does Paul do? He gives an answer that really doesn't satisfy any of them, because both of them, one of them, you know, wanted to be able to impose one of the groups wanted to be able to impose their legalism and their law over the consciences of others, and one of them wanted to uh, be able to indulge in sin. With a clear conscience, and Paul was not going to allow either of those two things to happen. So now in verses 12 and 13, Paul is transitioning into his concluding remarks before he will pick up a new topic in chapter 11. So think about this. We've been, since chapter 8, I think it was in September of last year when I began preaching sermons from 1 Corinthians 8, we've really been in one literary section all of these many months, and we're coming to an end of that. I'm going to give you, by way of a title today, Admonition and Assurance for the Tempted Christian. Not only because that sounds nice and puritanical, but because that's chiefly the the the, the content of verses twelve and thirteen. Verse twelve is a admonition, it is a warning. Verse 13 is assurance, it's a promise. Verse 12 tells us that we dare not fall to temptation. Verse 13 tells us that we need not fall to temptation. Now, which one of these verses, don't answer out loud, but which one of these verses do you think is most popular today? Well, if you're thinking verse 13, you're exactly right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 is one of the most quoted verses of this entire book. Go to a Christian bookstore, you'll find it on t-shirts, you'll find it on coffee mugs. Most of the time you'll find that little phrase from verse 13 where, you know, it says, No temptation has taken you, but God is faithful. He's not going to suffer you above that you're able. Well, that's because it's a promise. And everyone loves the promises of the Bible. I love the promises of the Bible. You love the promises of the Bible. Everyone loves the nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everyone loves the I give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. We love the promises. But you don't often see the warnings receiving the same attention. You, you probably won't go into the Christian bookstore and see pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord on a t-shirt. You probably won't see someone with a coffee mug that says, Know ye not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That that doesn't make for good bumper sticker theology. You you won't see, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You won't see these verses on t-shirts and coffee mugs because those verses don't comfort us. In fact... Sometimes they make us feel downright uncomfortable. They're warnings. They're admonitions. But what I hope you'll see in this text is that the warnings and promises, the admonitions and the assurances work together. They're not working against each other. They're working with each other. And we have an equal need for both of them. when I'm being proud and presumptuous and I think I'm the best Christian to walk the face of the earth since the Apostle Paul I need a warning that says take heed lest you fall Mm -hmm. but when I'm discouraged when I'm frustrated and I feel that I can't go on and I am truly broken over my sin to the point of despair I need a promise that says God is faithful And he'll make a way of escape. So, love the promises, but don't despise the warnings. So as we consider this text before us, may God challenge us and warn us, but may he also comfort our hearts and encourage us to press on for his glory. As such, I have a very simple outline. You probably can guess what it is. I have two points. Point number one is admonition. Point number two is assurance. So let's look. Number one, admonition in verse 12. Paul says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. The first thing I want you to notice is that this is speaking of someone who thinks they stand. They think they stand. Paul gives another warning. In Romans 12, and verse 3, he says, For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. One of our greatest problems as Christians is that all of us, all of us, to one degree or another, think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And it's bad enough when this high thinking causes us to believe that we're more gifted than we really are, or we're smarter than we really are, or we're better than other Christians, or better than other churches. But when we begin to think that we have reached a level of spiritual maturity that allows us to stand against any and all temptations, that's when our high thinking really becomes deadly. Theologically, none of us here this morning affirm the doctrine of sinless perfection. That doctrine that teaches that we are above the capacity of sinning. None of us affirm that. But practically, we sometimes live like it in certain areas. We we think, whether we want to admit it or not, we look at certain sins... We think about certain evils. We see what some people are doing and we think to ourselves, I would never do that. When we expose ourselves to temptation because we've convinced ourselves that we have the strength to stand, what we are in reality doing is making ourselves susceptible to fall. That's the really the dastardly reality of what Paul is talking about here. The very thing that these people think they have is what's going to bring their ultimate downfall. Have you ever told this lie to yourself? Oh, I can handle it. Well, maybe other people in the same situation would give in to that temptation, but not me. I can stand. Well, I've been walking with the Lord for... Years, I am more godly and more mature than younger Christians. I can stand. Dear brother, dear sister, have you no knowledge of your own sinful flesh? Have you no understanding of your own inherent weakness? Has pride and self-confidence really beguiled you into thinking that you are above sin? If we're honest with ourselves, many times the answer is yes. One of the most disheartening things that happens in evangelicalism is when a a hero of the faith falls into sin. And we think to ourselves, how could that be? I mean, that's somebody that I look up to as a godly example. It happens when that that preacher, that man, maybe that woman, if it's, if it's a woman of the faith that has written books and spoken at conferences and different things, it falls. That man or that woman, that person that we idolize. Pride makes them believe that they're really all that in a bag of chips when they're not. And they fall to temptation. They let their guard down. What might, cause, what might cause us to have such a wrong perception of our own strength? How could we be so deceived? That's what, it, that's what this is, by the way. It's deception. Him that thinks, he stands. He thinks he stands, but he really doesn't. He's deceived. I would submit to you that this deception stems from a misunderstanding of the source of our strength. Right. We falsely think we stand... When we think that we are the ones who produce our strength. I'm at a good church. I have good habits. I have a good routine going. I've got good Christian friends. I've been a Christian for a while. Whatever line you like to tell yourself to make yourself think that you have arrived. One of the most popular ones in reform circles is what? I've got good theology. My theology is better than the theology down the road. Therefore, that must mean that I am superiorly spiritual above all the people that don't understand theology the way I do. Yes, you do have good theology. But your good theology will not prevent you from sin. One of the preachers that I love to listen to is not that well known. He's a pastor out in Nevada, actually. And he, his name is Brian Borgman. And he said, Although it's absolutely vital for true godliness to be rooted in the truth, having the truth does not secure true godliness. To break it down even further, you can't have godliness without the truth, but you can't have theological truth without godliness. What a poor testimony it is to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we've all witnessed it, and at times, I've probably been it. When you meet a man who has such pristine theology, and it's just an absolute jerk. <laughs> when you meet a man that can explain these deep theological concepts and he likes to read these big books but he has no kindness he has no love he thinks that it's a sin to smile I heard Mark Dever say recently he said you know we've got young people at our church that love to read these big theology books by John Piper and John MacArthur and when I hear that that they, they won't even leave church a few minutes early to pick up an elderly person and take them to church my response to that is I don't know if they're converted What you must realize, whether you've been in the faith 30 minutes or 30 years, is that apart from Christ, you have no strength of your own. Using your own works as evidence for your strength to withstand temptation is a sure way to make yourself vulnerable. The devil would love nothing more than for you to believe that you can handle it. Don't think of temptation this way. Don't think of temptation as, well, I'm a good Christian, I read my Bible, I go to church, I know theology, I can handle it. You must think about temptation. Lord Jesus, I am so weak. And the temptations that face me are too strong for me to bear on my own Lord, give me strength to endure and sustain me by your grace. When you depend upon yourself, you become the one who thinks he stands. But when all your dependence is in Christ, then you are the one who truly stands. So he says... To him that thinks he stands, what is he to do? He's to take heed. Take heed. I love that little phrase, take heed. It's scattered all throughout the Bible. Watch out. Be mindful of. Thoroughly examine. Be vigilant. Gird yourself up. Don't let your guard down. Take heed, Christian. Not only must we fight the pride that causes us to think we stand when we don't, we must also guard against the careless lack of discipline that makes us vulnerable to temptation. This is what God is exhorting us to in this verse. If you are going to live the Christian life with perseverant holiness, you must be ever on guard against the snares of temptation. You are fighting a spiritual battle. All throughout the New Testament, the Christian life is likened to warfare. And you will be overcome if you are careless or lazy. You will be overtaken. I just really don't have time to put on the full armor of God this morning. I'm going to go out on the battlefield in my civilian outfit. Guess what? You're going to die. You're going to die. We have veterans that this church would be the first to tell you the most foolish thing you could ever do is walk into enemy lines without your, your combat gear. It'd be like chicken liver in a catfish pond. That's exactly what Christians are when they go into the world carelessly, not girding up themselves, not taking heed to themselves. See, there are some temptations that are simply unavoidable, especially in the digital age that gives us access to just about anything we desire. As a Christian in the world, you must see that you are walking through a minefield of temptations. And all it takes is just a little carelessness for you to step on an explosive temptation that will destroy you. These temptations are an ever-present reality. But as one man said, you can't help it that the birds fly over your head. Just don't let them make a nest in your hair. If you thought that this sermon was going to be how to avoid all temptations, I'm sorry. There's there's no way for that to, to take place. You're going to experience them. And the Bible says not how to avoid all of them, but what to do because we will face them. But on the other hand, some temptations are avoidable. Some. But we face them because we have failed to discipline ourselves so as to avoid them. Before you pressed play on that movie, before you pressed play on that YouTube video, did you stop to consider what content you were about to set before your eyes? Before you agreed to go out to that social function, Did you stop to consider what company you would surround yourself with? When you were invited to go out Saturday night, did you stop to think, well, maybe if I'm out into the wee hours of Saturday night, Sunday morning, I might be tempted to forsake the worship of God because I'll be so physically exhausted. Did you think about that before accepting the invitation? Before you took that new position at work, did you stop to think about the temptations that might accompany Long hours at the office away from your wife and children? Or the temptations that could come from an increased budget? Oftentimes, very serious temptations can be overcome with rather simple provisions. One of the things that Paul Washer is most known for is his emphasis on personal holiness. I've met Paul, but I've not had time to spend with him in any intimate setting. But recently I did have time to spend with Don Curran, who is the director of donor relations for HeartCry, one of Paul's closest friends. I spent several days with him, had several meals with him, and listened to a lot of the wonderful, wise things he had to say. And he told several stories about Paul, and one of the stories he told was that when he, when he had first met Paul, early on in their relationship together, they met for breakfast at McDonald's. And they went to McDonald's and they ordered their food and the, the lady at the McDonald's laid the placemat down, the, the tray down, and then took the paper placemat and, and set it down. And Don said that on that placemat, there was a, a picture of an immodestly dressed woman. And before she even set the food on it, Paul took it and flipped it over and set it down, face down. And Don said that now he's known Paul several decades, and he said that that is proven to be characteristic of Paul's daily walk with the Lord. The simple provision of turning that placemat over allowed him to focus on the things of God and engage in edifying conversation without having to even worry about the temptations that have come that could have come from dwelling too long at that placemat. Some of you might be saying, well, that seems a bit extreme. He, he seems like a stick in the mud. I mean, that's just weird for you to flip over the placemat. I mean, don't you know how godly Paul Washer is? You mean to tell me that Paul Washer couldn't withstand just a simple and modest picture on a McDonald's placemat? That's not a mature way of thinking. Some of you might not know this name. I know some of you do. In the 60s and 70s, really even on into the 80s and 90s, there was a preacher in New Jersey by the name of Al Martin. Al Martin, again, was known for being a man that was devoted to godliness. Given over to godliness. And I once heard a story that Al Martin in the 60s and 70s, so this is pre-smartphones, pre-internet, when he would go to preach a, a meeting somewhere, and he would check into the hotel room, the first thing he would do is remove all the electronics from the hotel room. He'd take the phone out, he'd take the TV out, and he'd set it out in the hall. And the... the The room service would come by and they'd say, Sir, uh, what are you doing? (laughs) And Al Martin would say, Ma'am, sir, I am here for one week for the purpose of ministering the Word of God and I need to be in my hotel room praying, studying, and giving myself and my heart and my affections over to the things of God if I'm going to be a blessing to the people that have called me here to preach to them. And I don't even want to have the distractions in my room. Perhaps you would say that's a bit extreme. It's silly for us to think of something like that now because we have a cell phone. Uh, Taking the TV out of the hotel room would seem really pious, but is it really doing anything if you have a smartphone? Well, it's not. But you might say that's an extreme provision to do whatever it takes. It's no more severe than the provision that Jesus gave when he said, if your eye causes offense, pluck it out throw it away. If your hand causes offense, cut it off. Cast it away from you. What I want you to understand is this. Men who are known for their godliness, like Paul Washer and Al Martin, are not holy because they are so strong or because they found the secrets to living the Christian life. We have such a wrong view of men like that. They're so holy and so godly precisely for the other reasons. Because they realize how weak they are. The reason why Paul Washer is known for his holiness and the reason why we're not is because Paul Washer realizes that an image on a placemat at McDonald's could tempt him to sin and you and I are oblivious to it. These are men who take heed and guard themselves. These are men who discipline themselves so that they can live for the glory of God. Well, you say, preacher, what happens when we fail to have such discipline? When we allow pride and carelessness to expose us to temptation? Well, Paul goes on and he says, Take heed, lest he fall. This falling is not just one simple instance of falling into sin. If that were the case, then this warning would be pointless. Because all of us have fallen in this way. If I, I'm not going to do this, but if I said... Raise your hand if you were tempted with sin this morning. Every hand would go up. But then, if I said, No, keep it up if you have successfully withstood every one of those temptations. Well, if you were honest, if we were honest, we would one by one see every hand go down. The falling that Paul refers to is not falling in one specific instance to one specific sin that we then repent of and continue on in our pattern of godliness the fall that paul refers to is the kind of falling he referred to in 927 when he said but i keep under my body And bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. This is the kind of falling that makes you a castaway. It's the kind of falling that shipwrecks your Christian life. It's the kind of falling that brings you into a pattern of habitual, unrepentant sin that robs your joy in Christ. It's the kind of falling that alarms those around you who see it. It's the kind of falling. That may even reveal that you're a false convert. It's the kind of falling that may reveal that you didn't know the Lord to begin with. This is the kind of falling that occurs when someone comes into the church. (laughs) And they're so zealous. And they're so excited. And they may even have some really wonderful theology. And they have a zeal. And they want to be involved. And they want you to know that they want to be involved. But when they realize, hey, wait a minute. These people don't think I'm the best thing since sliced bread. These people actually hold me accountable. These people expect me to submit to the church. These people actually expect me to be at all the services. These people confront me when I sin. What's the matter with them? When they realize that, they don't like it, and they fall. And the culprit, in almost every case, is pride and carelessness. Pride and carelessness. They were not honest before the Lord about their own sin, about their own weakness, about their own immaturity, and they fell away. I once knew I once knew a, a man that told me that God had called him to the ministry, called him to preach. Was interested in the church. Right off the bat, wanted to know when could he get behind the pulpit. Known him for two weeks, and he was asking when could we ordain him to the gospel ministry? And when we told him, Well, this is the Lord's church, and the Lord has a pretty clear guideline for men called to the ministry and the Lord says to lay hands on no man suddenly. This, this individual that was so zealous and so godly and loved the Lord he fell away. Gone. His family was torn apart. God is giving us this sharp warning because none of us are too good to sin. This coming Tuesday will mark two years that this church has existed in Paris, Tennessee. And in the last two years, we've seen this kind of falling several times. And if you think that falling into sin in such a tragic way could never happen to you, take heed. Take heed lest you fall. Well, that's the admonition. In verse 12. And we need that admonition. And I would feel like I did you a great disservice if I prayed and quit. Because I want you to see the assurance. Verse 13. The assurance. God in this passage not only gives us an admonition. He also gives us a very sweet assurance. This assurance can be broken down into four facets. Okay? Look at verse 13 with me. He begins and he says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. The the idea behind the verb taken is not simply to encounter temptation. No, what Paul has in mind here is to be seized by it, to be assaulted by it. It comes on very strongly. It it bothers you. It, It grabs a hold of you. It's a temptation that you could very easily succumb to. And it's important we understand that in light of what Paul says next. Because sometimes we think that the reason why we fall to certain temptations is because they are abnormally strong or exceptionally powerful. (laughs) Well, other things, maybe I can overcome that, but this one thing in my life, this one besetting sin, it's just too strong for me. Can't handle it. Nobody can handle it. You try to handle it. But the first point of assurance is that the only kind of temptations that we face are those temptations that are common to man. Meaning that no matter what you're being tempted with, some Christian somewhere has been tempted with the same temptation before you and resisted it. Again, I heard a preacher preaching um, on sins that face... that. that particularly men face and he said one of the lies we tell ourselves is well everybody everybody struggles with it everybody has a problem with it he said no they don't that's a lie that's a lie because these temptations are common to man not every man struggles with it there are men that have victory over it but the same truth applies to every sin there's Christians that don't gossip there's Christians that aren't critical Of every little thing. One of the lies of Satan is to make you think that the temptation is so great that resistance is not an option and that you have no choice but to commit whatever sin you're being tempted with. He makes you feel so hopeless like sin is the only option. And so what do you do? You just give in. Well, Satan... I mean, I guess it's not sinning is not an option. I might as well just sin. Sometimes in counseling, you will hear people say things like, well, preacher, you just don't understand how hard it is because you've never dot, 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 fill in the blank. But what is God saying here in verse 13? God is saying to that, get over yourself. Your temptations are common. And by the way, it's the Word of God that helps you, not someone who's gone through a similar experience. So please don't fall into this thinking that the only one that can help an alcoholic is an ex-alcoholic, and the only one that can help someone who's been abused is someone who's been abused. It's the Word of God that helps. And if the person that's, that's trained in the Word of God and knowledgeable in the Word of God, if they also have a personal testimony that lines up, that's just an added bonus. And God says, your temptation is really not that special. Now, at first, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, that sounds really harsh. That sounds really inconsiderate. What do you mean my temptation is not that special? Don't you know how hard it is for me? Here's why that's encouraging. Let me, let me explain this to you. Because I had this question myself. I'm like, what do you mean my temptation is... Are you saying it's not really hard? No. Here's what this means. What God is doing is giving you a proven history of this temptation being overcome by his people. Does that make sense to you? You're not the first to experience this. You're not the only one that's gone through this. You're not alone in this. Yes, I know it's hard. And it was hard for others. And they resisted. And they overcame through Christ. God is saying to you, you're giving this temptation too much credit. It's common to man. Others have overcome. You will overcome. What's the greatest example of a man overcoming temptation? Matthew 4, where the gospel records our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though truly God, is also truly and fully and really man in every way. He was tempted at all points. And John tells us that there's three Basic temptations. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Jesus was tempted with all three of those things in Matthew 4. And he overcame. He quoted the word of God, and he overcame. And God promises to sustain you, even as he sustains his only begotten son. That's the first facet of this assurance. Notice the second. Paul goes Right for the trump card. And Paul lays down the ace of spades. You want some help in temptation? Here it is. God is faithful. God is faithful. If you need encouragement in your struggles against temptation, this is the one thing that you must remember above all else. God is faithful. Paul drives the Corinthians back to the very attributes of God and he reminds them that their God is a faithful God who keeps His Word, who never lets His people down, who always fulfills His promises, who never fails to save those who trust in Him. And this is not just a theological statement. This is a personal guarantee. God is faithful to you. He's faithful to you. Never has there been a day gone by when God was not faithful. And never have you had a need that God was not pleased to meet in Christ. Never has He left you. Never has He forsaken you. You may have turned away from Him, but He's never turned away from you. You may have given into temptation, but He's never left you in the midst of temptation. Even in the fiercest, fiery inferno of temptation, God is still faithful. And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, you know, as I think about my life... There are some areas where I have been living too close to the edge. There are some areas where I have been allowing myself to be tempted when I shouldn't have. Let me tell you right now, God is faithful. And if you right now, where you sit, realize the error of your folly and you say, Lord, I am, you are impressing upon my mind a particular sin, a particular area. I have allowed myself to be tempted. He will be faithful to help you. God is faithful. This faithful God sent His Son to die for you on a cross and this faithful God will sanctify you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what this truth does that God is faithful? Removes your excuses. No longer can you say, this temptation is just too strong. It's not stronger than the faithfulness of God. No longer can you say, I just can't stop. Yes, you can! God is faithful. And the faithful God who sent his son to die on the cross to justify you is the same God with the full power of his omnipotence who will work for your sanctification. Jesus, I've said this so many times, I'm going to keep saying it until until God takes my breath away. Jesus loves you too much to allow you to remain in the sins he died to save you from. You you can't say, well, I've tried to fight this sin, but that's just the way I am. Well, newsflash, the whole point of the gospel is to change who you are. When you say things like that, you're sinning against the very character of God. When you say, well, this sin is just a reality for my life. I'm just going to commit this sin till I die. What you're really saying is God's not faithful to deliver me from this sin. But if you persist in your sins in such a way, let me assure you that the fault is not God's, because He is faithful. And when you relinquish your pride, and when you confess your weakness, and when you repent of your dependence upon your own strength, and when you begin to trust in Christ alone, and in His strength alone, God is faithful to save you and deliver you from the power of your sins. Do you believe that this morning? Whatever the sin is, I've had sins in my life that i struggle struggled with like that. And I thought, am I ever going to get the victory over it? Let me tell you, God is faithful. Mm -hmm. He's faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. There's the third promise we see. And the third promise is that God puts a sovereign limit on our temptations. Praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. Now there's a Christian cliche that's very popular. I heard it growing up. You probably heard it. It goes like this. God will never put more on you than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can bear. But that's the sort of cliche that originates with a verse taken right out of context. Read the whole verse. The whole verse says that any temptation is too much for you to handle. The very life you live is too much for you to handle. That's why you need a Savior. This verse is not saying that you do all right on your own, and then when God sees that you start to struggle, then he intervenes. And then he decides to get involved in the situation. This verse is teaching that God is exhaustively sovereign over your temptations from beginning to end. So next time you feel that your burdens are too great, just think of all that God didn't allow to come to pass in your life. The study of temptation is also a great study on the perfect harmony and compatibility between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, the responsibility of man. On the one hand, we are told to take heed to ourselves. On the other hand, we are told that God is faithful to sustain us. And these two truths do not contradict one another. Because the faithful grace of God is what enables us to take heed to ourselves. But if we aren't taking heed to ourselves, if we're living carelessly and we're living undisciplined lives, we have no right to claim the promise of God and rest in them. Now, perfection is not the standard for God's grace. If it was, no one would ever receive God's grace. There are those who have no desire to serve God and live for Him, have no love for Christ in their hearts, have no affection for Him, never have done anything for the service or the glory of God. And then yet when some trial comes in their life, then all of a sudden they become a prayer warrior. Believing that God is faithful to deliver them. You know what? evidence of God's grace and faithfulness in your life is that which has already worked in you. Taking heed to yourself. Striving after holiness. That's evidence that God is working in you. And the Bible says, He that begun a good work will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. But if that work never began, there's nothing to be performed. And this isn't a hard concept. Salvation is by sovereign grace alone, but that grace changes those it saves. And if you don't exhibit a change in your life, then you have no reason to think that you experienced grace in the first place. Don't use the faithfulness of God as an excuse to live loosely and foolishly. That's what I'm getting at here. If you think, well, the preacher said God's faithful, so that means, hey, bring on the temptation. You don't understand what grace is or how it works. And fourthly and finally, this faithful God will, with the temptation, also... this. By the way, this doesn't mean that he makes the temptation and makes the way of escape. Otherwise, he would be the author of our temptations. The Bible says God does not tempt man with evil. But when those temptations come, God will, with those temptations, he will make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. We are promised that God's faithfulness will provide a way out of whatever temptation we're under. That's another lie of Satan. He will tell you there's no escape. There's no way out of this situation. These thoughts that you struggle with, there's no solution to them. The this, this sin that... You, you can't break the desire for. But that's just the way it is. No escape. Hopelessness. You cannot serve God from a heart of hopelessness. Correct. It's interesting to note that God says the solution to temptation is escape. He's going to make a way for you to escape. The way to avoid temptation is by running from it. By fleeing it. Was Joseph tempted in Potiphar's house? You bet he was. Every day. Every day. How did he overcome that temptation? When that temptation literally seized him, when Potiphar's wife literally grabbed a hold of him, he fled. He ran. He bolted out of that house. And he said to himself, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Why is there so much sin in the church today? Because there's not a lot of fleeing going on. Mm -hmm. Think think about the last time you encountered temptation. Whatever, Whatever it was. At work. Standing around the water cooler. Talking with coworkers. In the car. Driving down the road it cuts you off? By yourself? Alone? In front of a screen? Did you flee? And Really, did you flee? I'm not asking you, did you give in to the temptation? I'm asking you, did you really flee from it? Can you really say, yes, I fled from it. I, I walked away from the conversation. I got up out of my room and went into the living room. Set my phone on the coffee table, went back to bed. Fled. Temptation. I pulled over on the side of the road and prayed, Lord, help me to not have anger in my heart. Did you flee? If not, why not? Well, probably because fleeing is embarrassing. I mean, if you really flee sin people are going to look at you and they're going to think that you're weird. But what bothers you more? Some unbelievers thinking that you're a little weird? Or going the way of the world and sinning against God? the church needs is not more self-confidence and pride, but more humility and dependence upon the sustaining grace of God. Let me close. And I'm just going to give these off very quickly. Let me give you five practical means of taking heed. How do you take heed in your daily life? Number one, watch over your own heart. Proverbs four twenty three says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Keep a short list of your sins. That means when when God convicts you of sin, you repent of it, you confess it, you deal with it. If it's the same sin, guess what you do? You repent again, and you deal with it, and you confess it. Live a life of confession and repentance. Confess your sins to the extent that your sins are known, so that you might live with a clear conscience before God and before others. Be watchful of what you feast your affections upon. Be watchful of the stimuli that you put into your heart. Secondly, put no confidence in your flesh or your willpower to stand against temptation. Quit trusting yourself. Follow your heart is some of the worst advice that could have ever been given. Have a healthy distrust of your own self. If you're thinking, you know, I really don't know if I should go to that event because I really don't know that with, with all of the influences that will be there, really, I just I don't know. Well, if you don't know, don't go. Have a healthy distrust for yourself. Thirdly, examine yourself in light of the Word of God. Now, if you're going to do that, that implies what? That you read it, that you intake it regularly. But when you read it, don't just read it and say, okay, I'm getting some good information here and I'm learning some Bible stories. But read the Bible and read it as if it were a mirror. And ask yourself the questions, how does this apply to me? You read a verse that says, him that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Ask yourself, do I think I stand? I mean, really. How, how good do I think I am? In, in what ways could I be taking heed of myself. Ask yourself when you're reading scripture, am I obeying this? And if you can't point to some areas in your life where you can say, Yes, this is me seeking imperfectly, but seeking to obey this, then the answer is probably no, I'm not. So examine yourself in light of the word of God. Fourthly, be proactive in prayer. Jesus said in Matthew 26:41, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray. How how many of you this morning, before you left your house, prayed, Lord, keep me from being tempted today. Save me from sinning presumptuously and carelessly because of a foolish temptation. Probably not many of us. Fifthly, Seek out, this is last, seek out and listen to the advice and counsel of the mature Christians in your life. One of the best ways, one of the best ways to cultivate a guarded heart from temptation is to bear your heart with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Examine me. Search me. Look at my life. Ask me questions. Don't wait for them to come to you and say, Hey, brother, we've been noticing something. Hey, sister, we saw something that we want to bring to your attention. Come to them. Do you make a regular habit of, of asking your brothers and sisters, Hey, how would you assess me? You'd be surprised at the good that that would do. And when... Someone does come to you in the church and they do say, hey brother, hey sister, I've noticed something in your life that's concerning to me. Do not harden your heart and blow it off and puff yourself up in pride and become angry. Say, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me live my life. Mind your own business. They are in your life by the appointment of God for your own good. And may this church, may this brotherhood of of, Brothers and sisters in the Lord, may we be always ready to help one another. To help one another. To be there for one another. If you're going through something alone in this church, it is only because you're choosing to go through it alone. Let us be there for one another. Let us help one another so that we don't fall into temptation. So that we stand for the glory and the honor of God of Christ, so that none of us die in the wilderness, but that we together enter that promised land. I can't wait to spend eternity with all of you, and I want to be able to look back on our lives here on earth and to say, look at all the wonderful things that God did for us at Christ Fellowship in Paris, Tennessee. We got out a blessing to the reading of his word. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. We ask you to speak to our hearts Lord, when the sermon is over, that's really when the praying needs to begin. You've laid it out there for us so clearly and so plainly that we take heed unto ourselves and apply the living word of God to our hearts. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.